It's mm. always so much better when you're here, Paul. It's <laughs> 10 out of 10. Pisses me off. <laughs> God, okay. I saw the most brutal execution in the show that I was watching today. Oof. What show? Ozark. Oh, yeah. yeah definitely. Uh, I Snapchat. Um, nothing in my mind will top um, watching in The Leftovers that woman get stoned to death, Oof. which is not something that you think about, <laughs> like what? how awful that is, really. You know it's bad, but God. when you really see it. Yeah. They show it? Oh, yeah. They show oh, it yeah. all. It's Oh, long. my God. Yeah. It's I was crazy. Say, the whole start again. That sounds horribly unpleasant. Yeah, she's like begging them not to. Uh, you, yeah, obviously. But uh. um, <clears throat> well, sorry. Uh, <laughs> now it's been a little bit. I think I don't remember when we put that episode out, but it's been at least a week. I think probably be two since from when this comes out. I believe so. Yeah, uh, and this this is going to be a this is a light one in terms of um, you know we're not going to be here for two hours. No. This is going to be a pretty, pretty quick, sprightly episode. Yes, but it is also covering topics that we have not yet covered. And uh, It's true. We actually, you want to talk about dedication. Greg, Greg was so excited. Greg and I are so excited about potentially doing more of what we're about to do because we got some nuclear incidents. And we got so excited about it that Greg and I split a stock image of an 8-bit radioactive fallout sign, a radiation sign, so we could make separate artwork for episodes like this. No shit. Potentially under the Atomic Adventurer umbrella. Oh, yes, dude. Wow. Um, the inaugural. We're, be- we're slowly becoming our own bar stool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have yeah, pretty so much. many offshoot podcasts. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, no, I just like, there's so many new Call her armchair? No. Can't do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, no, there's armchair so- daddy, please. Yeah, there we go. Oh. oh my god! <laughs> Where uh, I will we're, give we're detailed sure, instructions stru- on how to give a gluck gluck nine thousand. We're stretch it real thin here. Uh, we are officially attached to that for life now. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, anywho, yeah. There's just like there's a lot of nuclear incidents. I think that uh, you know are are definitely like noteworthy there's, enough that we should talk about them. And there's there's a good number of them that are like small enough where most people haven't heard about them. So. There's one that happened in Idaho that I would really like to talk about. I feel like I mentioned it on an episode a long time ago, but it's worth talking about again. Um, yeah, I, I think I know the one you're talking about. We can talk about it later. But. Yeah. Anyway, well, onto our subject matter for today. Uh, what's yours about, Kane? What, you, so, what are you talking about? <clears throat> I've got a very famous one that I knew of, knew nothing about, and I feel like that's the case for a lot of people because it was in the 70s. Three Mile Island, the Three Mile Island incident. Mm. Now, some opening thoughts here. Um, Oddly enough, for the super fans, i.e. me, I have used, in, in we did an episode, and I think this was back when it was just Dan and I. We did Mount Taishan. Do you remember that, Dan? Uh, Yeah, Yeah, you guys did do that. I remember hearing that episode. And I had no idea what to do for the outro music that wouldn't sound like offensive or racist, you know, if I did something like (laughs) Chinese music, you know? So I ended up going with audio from a movie called The China Syndrome. That's right. Which, oddly enough, details an incident almost exactly like the Three Mile Island incident. However... It was the movie was released 
10 days before the Three Mile Island no. incident. Oh, no. Whoa. And there is some weird, there's some, I, I was reading some talk that there's conspiratorial thoughts that maybe that movie was funded, like some energy companies, you know, approached a producer to be like, let's make a movie that makes nuclear energy look very bad. God, um, I gotta and, wash my face. Like big oil, you talking? Yeah, big oil, there. coal, something like that. You know. Um, now, Def- definitely not big hydro. Definitely not big hydro. They don't have that kind of bankroll for that. <laughs> they still don't. <laughs> um, this, the Three Mile Island incident, was pretty minor, all things considered. It was really the, if you'll pardon the term, fallout from the situation <laughs> that had a much bigger effect because it was like. It's the deadly, not deadly, it's the worst nuclear incident to have happened on U.S. soil since. And in fact, between this happening and 2013, not a single nuclear reactor was commissioned in the United States. Really hung on for a long time, people not liking it. But let's get started. So this is the 28th of March, 1979, when this happens. And the Three Mile Island power plant is just outside of, it's about 20 miles outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, the capital of that glorious state. And it had two reactors, TMI-1, if you couldn't figure it out, that stands for Three Mile Island, and TMI-2. TMI-1 is 800 megawatts, and that was built in 1974. TMI-2 is the one that went a little funky, and that was basically new when it happened, but it was, it was more powerful, it was 906 megawatts. Uh, now, I should say, TMI-1 is still running to this day and is actually one of the best and most effective nuclear power plants we have in the country. That mm. just blows my mind. Yeah. That, um, that that's not the dominant narrative from this whole thing. It's it's a lot of fear-mongering, and I get some of the, like, fear that people have, but it really is like, it's like let's, let's move past it, folks. <laughs> let's get some nuclear power plants, huh? Um. I'm passionate about that. It might not sound like well, it, but I am. Yeah. Well, especially when you like bring up like oil spills and all that stuff. It's crazy. Know, no one's stopping driving cars and stuff like that. Yeah. Fucking pipeline bursts and stuff. Pipeline. Well, Yuck. I mean that and there's a there's a flip side to that too and that's that uh train cars carrying oil is vastly more uh likely to cause oil spills than pipelines are. Pipelines do leak, but uh the amount of actual um like the risk of spilling oil um, with pipeline versus train car, train car is vastly more dangerous. But the, the main concern, I'm, the main concern with that is mostly where the leak would happen. Like, um, you know, if you have like a, like a b- below ground pipeline that's over like an aquifer or something like that, that could cause, <laughs> <laughs> which is the big one that's in the news, you know, yeah. um, that could be a major problem. Whereas, you know, a surface spill of tankers might be easier to clean up and, you know, just get some Dawn on there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I don't have a source wash, for this, wash some birds. but I believe I've read that coal power plants actually emit more radiation into the general area than nuclear power plants do. That is correct. Yes. Cause there's Dear no, like there's, they don't, there's no need for containment, you know, in yeah. the coal power plants. So they're just like, well, whatever. The problem with that is that, uh, is not the, like, or with, with nuclear power plants is not the, radi- to do with the radiation with the waste exactly you, know, you have solid waste that you have to do something yeah. with you know and yeah i wish we could just like shred that treaty and just launch it into space you know just like right at the sun but what are you gonna do um well, maybe if that gets a little more efficient but yeah we'll true 
so, like Chernobyl, this incident happened in the wee hours of the morning when the B team was running the show. <laughs> Son of a gun. <laughs> it, was, it was at 4 a.m. And uh, B team and nuclear power plant are two things you never want to hear next to each other. Well, it's... <laughs> freaking borons. I'll, I'll get into it because... Let me, let me start before I actually really get into what happened here. Sorry. Um, this was a colossal fuck up by the people running the show. Not like, you know, it was, it was way more human error than it was actual um, technical gremlins, you see? So gremlin. <laughs> this is... We need a soundboard. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> Say it again and again. But I've I've looked and like to actually get it set up with my setup, I would be spending hundreds of dollars. So oh no, it's not happening yeah. until we get an until we it, it, God forbid we get an advertiser, then it'll happen. <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> That if if we get an but advertiser, an you can say goodbye yeah. to outro music. You can say goodbye to all that stuff. So uh, yeah, um, yeah, it gets to be quite a quite a problem. Once we start making money, you know, um, uh, you mean I can't drink my Yards IPA from Yards <laughs> Brewing Company, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, Buyers today. So the, when this happened at four a.m., the operator was the reactor was operating at ninety-seven percent power, and. There was a blockage in a in a coolant line in the secondary coolant system. Now that's a pretty that sounds bad, but that's a really minor problem. Yeah, Usually they, they just blow compressed air through the line and that frees it up. I was gonna say, yeah, a coolant line, like a secondary coolant line, that's probably just like what some kind of redundant system where like if the main coolant line fails, it runs through the second. Yes. Yeah. But since it was blocked and there is actually like and it is it isn't a purely secondary, it does like Stuff goes through there. And so the core changed in temperature a little bit because of this blockage. Uh, and they couldn't, you know, they couldn't free it up with the air. But once the core changed temperatures unexpectedly, it immediately went into uh, shutdown. You know, it just mm-hmm. cooled it down. Now, if you've seen the show Chernobyl, and unfortunately they did a much better job explaining this than I will, but... Um, when a reactor shuts down, even though it's shut down, there's still fission going on, albeit less, but it is, you know, there's still fission, and so there is still heat. And <clears throat> this heat, it caused a pressure increase, and right when the shutdown happened, uh, something called the pilot-operated relief valve opened. And that's just to vent off some extra coolant because of the, you know, the pressure increase from the heat that's still there, even though the system isn't running. Now, that pilot-operated relief valve is only supposed to be open for a few moments, and then it's supposed to close. It did not close. And this is the one technical issue that snowballed into a, a partial meltdown of the plant mm. because it remained open, and so coolant was just pouring out of the, of the system. Now, they didn't actually have... Oh, and I'm sorry, it, it did not shut... And this is very important. It did not shut, but the system indicated that it had shut. Because it's, it wasn't like a positional, it doesn't say if it's open or closed. Imagine basically 
it would if when it flipped open a light would come on that the the cycle for it opening had started and then it would go off just after a timer that you know it was, it was just a time thing because it was supposed to close so they assumed it had closed but it hadn't you're and talking so, about a light that's on somebody's like, unlike dashboard. a control board yeah like oh, on a control god board. so oh god so they notice okay well this is weird we're losing coolant rather quickly so they start pushing just fresh water into the injection pumps as the fresh water which is slightly different from the coolant it is a little more susceptible to steaming and so when it runs through the whole cooling system and i'm going to apologize again because these are immensely complex machines and trying to wrap my head around exactly what went wrong took longer than most of the other research nuclear 101 they believe that they have lost coolant it has not just escaped out into the thing. It's, it's gone into a separate part of the system, but it is no longer cooling the reactor, what they need. So they start pumping in water, and the pressure is increasing because it's fresh water, and it's starting to steam up. And steam takes up a significant more amount of space than just water does. And they didn't actually have, like, a measure of how much coolant was in the system. They just used the pressure inside the pressurizer of the reactor and so since there's all this steam taking up space that isn't actually coolant it seemed like there was enough water but that is not the case so they think that it's full of water but the temperature is still rising and the furthermore all the steam that is now in the coolant system is causing the pumps that pump in the coolant to shake violently. And they don't want those to break, so they shut down that whole system, thinking that it's fine, thinking they have pumped water in, everything's peachy, we don't want to break the pumps, let's turn them off. So they turn them off, which ended what little cooling they were doing for the reactor. And as what water and coolant was in there boiled away, the core became uncovered and even hotter. And when this happens, the fuel rods were damaged and released radioactive material into the cooling water. Now, by this point, we're talking, we're at about 5, almost 6 a.m. So this has been going on for a little over an hour. And these people have no clue what to do because they have very little instruction. And, you know, they're going off of like, I mean... Already, we've got problems with there's no, there is no way to tell how much coolant is in the reactor. They just have a pressure level and, you know, that light. So I'm like also imagining, like you mentioned Chernobyl, right? Mm-hmm. Where like so many of those people were probably like 30 and younger. Oh, yeah. I'm imagining a very similar city. 1979, come this on. Was, this was the kind of job you could get out of high school back then. <laughs> right, I was going right. to say, they were probably taught to like, okay, look at these like readings and hit this button if it exactly. goes in the red. That's thread. exactly it. Not, they'll, they'll here's a see, binder. They don't know anything about actual nuclear fission. No, not at all. They just know, okay, well, looks like the pressurizer says the pressure's good, so we must have enough coolant, even though it's like 80% steam and 20% water at this point. <laughs> Well, it's not like you can just look out the window and like, oh, nope, everything's wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's this is all, a- <laughs> It's just a, a windowless room, I assume. So part of the reason that 
this is all happening, and this is something that they didn't find out until a little bit later, was that the three auxiliary valves for the pump system, don't ask me to explain what the hell those do, <laughs> those were closed. And those shouldn't be closed during a shutdown. Those are supposed to be opened, but they didn't know that. So it is 6 a.m., shift change. The new guy comes God. in, and boy, does he walk into a zoo because he gets there and everybody is losing their mind because the temperature is just rising and rising. And they're worried about, you know, if the steam buildup becomes too much, it could rupture the containment unit. And so the, you know, whatever plant manager, you know, shift leader, whatever shows up and he immediately, in fact, when he showed up, the, the guy who he is taking over for was like, do you need your car? And <laughs> he's he like, no, I'm, you know, here to work. And so the guy he takes over for takes his car to go like inform the emergency people that this is happening. Dear God. But he he has the, the new guy. I'm sorry, I don't have names. I should have gotten names, but it doesn't really matter. Nobody. The yeah, new guy shows up, knows what's going on. So he's like, okay, well, let's just release this valve that's downstream a little bit from the, the thing. And that released the steam from the part of the pump system where steam shouldn't be. However... There is steam contained a little too much in the reactor itself. And that has, even though the situation is no longer getting worse, the reaction of the water being in the reactor as long as it had with, and the steam compounding this effect reacted with the material <laughs> that, the, that houses the fuel rods. Uh. It is a zirconium alloy. And it reacted with the water, creating hydrogen gas. You gotta so, be kidding me, dude! So there is now oh, bubble hydrogen bubble. gas is is notably inert, right? Well, right? yes, unless oh, no. <laughs> not at all. It's fine as long as oxygen does not get involved. Yeah. So there is a bubble of hydrogen building up in the reactor, and they know that this could, you know, rupture the tank or potentially explode and spew fuel rod. Fuel, you know, nuclear fuel everywhere. It takes a few hours, but they are able to off-gas the hydrogen. Regrettably, and this is basically the only negative effect of this whole situation, is when they off-gassed the hydrogen, with it was some radioactive krypton and xenon that got released into the atmosphere. However... Most of the nuclear, Jesus, <laughs> Radioact radioactive material. Yeah, no, it's like, it was like nucleotides. Oh, okay. Were filtered out know. by a HEPA filter. Believe it or not, the, just a HEPA filter and a charcoal filter got most of the actual radioactive stuff. Some still got out, and that is the only radiation leak from this whole incident. I did see. Only on one source, but I did see that somebody's saying being exposed to that amount of radiation that was released is similar to eating like a dozen bananas. So yeah, bananas have a lot of. So it's really not that dangerous, um, but even still, you know, it's not like that shouldn't happen regardless. We're, we're going to have to do an episode on bananas. Clearly, well, banana republics—that's uh, that's a topic for an episode right there. <laughs> yeah. You got yes. it. Actually, like. 
Something I've had. Okay, now, that was... I didn't have high hopes, and that was harder than I thought, talking about the actual incident. Does okay, anybody have questions? Great, Should I try did, to reiterate some of that? D- no, no. I mean, I think if, if, if any of our listeners... Uh, would like a detailed explanation, tell them to go find one of the many hundreds of YouTube videos that are out there. Well, again, the, I mean, we're the not point the is, ones to be talking about. It is not actually so important what transpired. It's really the after effects that really yeah. had an effect. And I mean, do you really care what I, happened in the reactor? I mean, I'll be honest. I think you did a great job, but yeah, also you you're right because thought. like the moral of this story is like you said, what happens afterwards. So it's mm-hmm. like, this is unfolding and society, you know. Um, so <clears throat> they, after this, you know, on the on the 28th, still on the same day, they decide, let's not turn the reactor back on. Good move. I'll tell you why. Um, they basically had a month it was just like sitting and waiting for investigatory boards to get set up and everything. And it wasn't until the 27th of April that they were cleared to start actually looking into what happened. And that is coincidentally also about how long it took to get the, like they ran the pumps and everything, just trying to get that system back to normal. And it took about a month to get everything back up to, where it needed to be and that was through like mechanical pumping of water they didn't actually use the the system it was called a cold shutdown because like the water wasn't ever getting above 100 degrees celsius at atmospheric pressure now here's what's crazy well i guess first i should say like it it got out pretty quickly the news and it was made uh it was a very bad game of telephone because some people like you know the plant director called like the the head of what is called met ed metropolitan edison was the overarching power company that owned three mile island and the head of met ed was the guy who had to go to like the governor and explain everything and when the plant director called the head of met ed the electrical company he explained to him how much radiation was like possibly exposed in the containment unit. But the Met Ed guy heard that as an offsite measure of how much radiation they were picking up offsite. Oh, so no. he immediately went to the governor and was like, this is super bad. We have a real emergency on our hands. And they declared a state of emergency. They evacuated nearby. Uh, it freaked people out. Like, you know, I don't know if you've seen, I know somebody personally who, who lived right by there when it happened and they had one of the I Survived Three Mile Island. Because, like, you know. <laughs> That's a thing? Yeah. I mean, it was a cow. big thing. And it was a big thing. <laughs> we're like, what, 25 years off, uh, 35 years off the Hiroshima, basically, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of people are still equating nuclear power plants with nuclear bombs in their mind. So there's already all this fear about nuclear power because it's relatively new. And so something like this happens, and we it's bad. Talk, I mean, it's bad enough that, like... Wait till we talk about mine in 1957. Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, yeah. you know, it's, it became a big enough deal that later that month or just early in April, like, Jimmy Carter visited. And um, Carter visited, and he actually worked. He was a nuclear engineer in the Navy. 
and he knew what was going on. And when he got back from that trip, he told his cabinet that it was very minor. However, he did not take that information public because at the time, the Democratic Party was very anti-nuclear power, and he did not want to upset the party. Poor Jimmy Carter, man. He drew yeah, such a short stick. Oh, he he got got caught in the middle of everyone. Poor yeah. guy. So bad. Man just wanted to farm peanuts. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that's quite the like switch. Nuclear engineer to peanut farmer. So, and Would now... Would make more sense if he was a banana farmer. Renaissance <laughs> man. A little bit ago, I said it's very good that they decided not to power the reactor back yeah, let's on. let's hear about that. So... They didn't know. They just thought, oh, boy, whoo, we dodged a bullet. They didn't think anything had actually happened. But in 1984, five years had passed, and they, that was enough time because they had already, you know, when you decommission a nuclear reactor, it takes a long time. It takes decades to actually clean everything up. Like, you can shut down a power plant in the 80s, and there's a chance it's still not fully decommissioned now, you know? Iowa State, prime example. Really? What What are you talking about? Yeah. Um, Nuki building or something? Because that's gone now. Yeah, but in the the basement of that building was oh, yeah. still used for experimentation for uh, like to study radiation on plant material up until 2012, which is when they finally filled the basement in with cement to you know, well, not sort the entire, of stabilize it. I wonder how much of the cement or the basement that is. Cause the Nuki building was like the home for the SAE formula team in like 2014. Well, yeah, that little garage <laughs> up the side, I'm talking oh, like okay. sub ground, like gotcha. okay. below. Yeah. But right. that's where one of the like reactors were. Yeah. I'm led to understand that's, one of the reasons mm-hmm. why I really wish I was on that team was that I got to do, spend more time in that building. Technically, I was employed by a professor in that building. That why do you wish that? It would have been cool. Just get my eyes know. on it, you know? Scroll so, third on. But, yeah. but no, Excuse anyway, me. Yeah, let's get Excuse back to the Excuse me. So in July of 1984, the head of the reactor pressure vessel was removed, allowing access to the remains of the core. And they found out that... The core, which had 62 tons, 45% of that had completely melted. The fuel had melted. Whoa. Oh, my God. That's not good. You want to know a fun fact I found out about this topic? Yes. Okay. So I did a little Google Maps research. Three Mile Island is no longer than 2.7 miles. They lied. <laughs> I cannot believe it. I will say. They rounded up. Brother, Three Mile up. Island. Don't we all? Is, there's something hey. about hey. <laughs> there's something about the name Three Mile Island that has like there's like a it's ominous. It sounds like it's a nuclear power plant, you know? Yeah, it's got a very oh yeah like you don't go there. Dude, and what's, what's no fun, one goes. We don't go to Three like, Mile Island anymore. I don't. I'm not sure what it is, but for some reason in my head, whenever I think about Three Mile Island. I don't picture the actual plant. I picture the the nuclear power plant for the Simpsons. <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, it's like it's just, to be fair, a lot there. of nuclear power. Like it, it it's got same. it's it's got the cooling towers. The cooling know? towers. I mean, once once you take the cooling towers away, it's like it could be anything. You know, it could be any yeah. power plant. Which is funny because the one we're going to talk about, the one or the one that I'm covering, 
does not have cooling towers that look like that. So Right. Neither does the one in Omaha, right? Uh, so actually there was two, um, and one of them has now since been decommissioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's actually perhaps a topic for another day, but it's a fairly mundane one, so I don't care if I spoil a little bit about it. But uh, the one that got decommissioned actually had some serious design flaws and also almost got flooded uh, within the last 10 years. Fukushima style. Well, so, not quite as bad. This obviously, one was just, dude, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> dear <laughs> God. But well, I mean, do you remember how bad the floods were, right? Yeah. Like came, like like it would have been maybe, you know, I don't know. Like twenty eleven, you talking about when like when like Hilton Coliseum flooded? Like Yes, twenty yeah. Yeah, exactly. Twenty eleven was like serious, serious flood and like most of the Missouri Valley was just completely wrecked by that. And they had to like they were within I think ten feet of that nuclear reactor being flooded. Uh-huh. Um, so, like I said, nothing much actually happened, but it was like people were concerned, and the Pennsylvania Department of Health for 18 straight years maintained a registry of more than 30,000 people that lived in the area. They wanted to keep track of them just in case they started to develop problems, you know? God. Uh, it didn't actually, they decommissioned the list in 1997, but yeah, nothing oh, ever really. You of know, course it nothing, yeah. no, like mm-hmm. It was nothing. But the damage that this incident did uh, far outweighs, far, far outweighs the actual damage that the incident did, if that makes sense. Um, <laughs> like the scare? You mean? The scare, you yeah, know, because, uh, I mean, just think about mm-hmm. where nuclear power might be in this country. Uh, you could argue that Chernobyl, regardless, would have, like, halted it, because I imagine that kind of stymied things worldwide for a few years. But, I mean, you have to imagine that we'd at least have more nuclear power plants if three mile Island ever happened. Right. I think, I think that the political implications absolutely in the United States were like, I mean, based on what you were saying, like we didn't commission a new one until what, 2013 you said? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty ridiculous. Do you know where that one was? Four years. No, I'll look it up right now. Okay. But, um, so, but that's where you're talking about, like that movie you were talking about. Yeah. That came 10 days or whatever before, you know, do is, do people really think that it was like set up that way or like, Hey, we're going to fucking do this. Uh, oh, oh, like the movie was made to damage the nuclear industry. Is that what you're saying? Well that, and then like, okay, they see this movie just came out and then it actually happens, you know, yeah, so pretty that's convenient. Um, and also I, another thing that might lend credence to it being made as like a, not propaganda, but I guess kind of propaganda Yeah, is, and you know, maybe we're a few years off, but it's pretty much right off the end of the like oil crisis, you know. Mm. Yeah, and I think the oil industry could have used a little good PR, or you know, in a sense, negative PR for the competition. So, yeah. so you don't think it's like a Simpsons situation where like oh. they're, pre- they're literally predicting the future? <laughs> Do I think they predicted the future successfully? No, but I, I get what you mean. Mm. Um, so on March 12th, 2013, construction began on the Vodal Electric Generating Plants Unit 3 and 4 in Waynesboro, Georgia. Interesting. Georgia is also the home, home to the United States' uh, largest coal power plant. The target in-service date for Unit 3 is November 2021. Sweet. So we're coming up on that. Good deal. I mean, well, if you, if you want to get real sort of fringe about it, Think about like 1979 nuclear energy takes like a real big PR hit. And just think about like Pennsylvania is this like 
really important swing state politically, and a lot of that falls on the line of like coal country, right? Mm-hmm. Like old, oh, yeah. rusted oh, yeah. out steel towns that you know, like had built like an entire generation of economic wealth on that type of industry it's that old money. fueled by right. gas, fueled money. by coal, fueled by oil, like steel. And, and just think about like if, if what might have happened if nuclear in Pennsylvania especially had not oh, taken that kind of hit. My God. Yeah, good point. Um, just a thought. Also, uh, <clears throat> I mean, wouldn't it be just insane if this was actually – industrial sabotage dear god but i um, mean who knows like who knows 50 years from now you know i just remembered something that i didn't write down but i remembered hearing in a uh i listened to a a podcast about this but most of that was about like the effects it had which you know uh the head of the plant had to meet with like presidential staff because carter opened up like a special task force for figuring out what happened at three mile island and they said they couldn't send anybody in to like manually shut the valve because of the risk of radioactive exposure right and so at first this plan operator thought that this carter aide was kidding but he asked him did you consider sending in somebody who was terminally ill with cancer to shut it? <laughs> you know, it's like Jesus. Jesus. No, <laughs> is their life worth the moment less? I you didn't know? think of that. <laughs> God. Oh my gosh! I mean, there's uh, again, yeah. Do we have any of those guys just lying around anywhere? Let's just go it's back. Like, it's to, like if you don't, did you consider anybody who might be, you know? mentally unstable or doesn't have any family you know? <laughs> yeah you just don't just really like progressively yeah. get more morbid yeah let's just go back to the the image of like you know 24 year old kids dealing with this situation right yeah yeah with a binder you know just... which harkens back to that whole <laughs> missile silo incident we talked about Oh, exactly. Uh, yeah, sure. Where it's like, yeah. holy shit, dude. Like, we're talking about, like, kids who are less than, like, I'm, you know, I'm 25. Like, thinking about somebody younger than me working on, like, you know, nuclear-armed missiles. <laughs> right. They they call they call in the disaster response team, and they get 23-year-olds, <laughs> and they're like, 25-year-olds, you know? It's like, dude, no. <laughs> you need experts, so, man. get this. I am reading now that, once they in 1990 when they finally pulled all the fuel from reactor two yeah they loaded it into 342 fuel canisters and shipped it off to the idaho national laboratory which coincidentally is where that incident i was talking about in idaho oh, took yeah. place that's what i thought um and i just pulled up their website on the department of energy website yeah i was gonna say there's a lab out there isn't and it? they currently have over 2,500 metric tons of spent nuclear fuel, 87% of which is stored in dry casks. And I'm looking at this picture. It looks like they have cylindrical vaults made of concrete with metal lids. They just have rows and rows of these that they just lower this stuff down into, and it just sits underground in concrete. And now that opens up another discussion. Sorry, Greg, before we get into yours. That's okay. Um... 
I know there was, it's, this is probably the best time we're going to have to mention this. Do you guys remember there was, in the early Obama years, there was talks of opening up a nuclear fuel depository in the Yucca Mountains. Oh, yeah. And that was, uh, you know, that eventually yucca, got yucca, canned. But yucca, but by yucca. The way. Yep. I like Yucca more. Um, well, it's incorrect. So yeah, take it up with the Native Americans, pal. <laughs> um, and, uh, <laughs> so that eventually got canned. But I remember reading for a specific super... reason, which I'll talk about in a second. Okay, uh, I remember being really excited about it because there was a lot of discussion, and this is an interesting point that I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on. the The intent was to that was going to be like the central repository, if I'm correct, uh, for nuclear fuel mm-hmm. for this country. And you have to leave that stuff there for an extremely long amount of time before it is safe. You know, mm-hmm. we're talking what? How many? What do you think the half life of it, like before it becomes I think it's safe? H- I think it's hundreds of years. Three oh, thousand like, years. I thought it was like thousands. Oh, holy shit! Yeah. Okay, maybe, um, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> because and the the reason they needed there was discussion about like how can we use architecture or you know related things to indicate to people that may be so far removed from the English language or, you know, or language in general. Aliens. That they would know not to go in there. So, you know, there's like, there was some artist renderings of insane, like jagged spikes that you would have to get through to get there, you know, just make it seem like, please (laughs) stay out. But like, do you guys, obviously they couldn't come up with something, but do you guys have any thoughts of like, what is, how would you do that? How would you indicate do not enter in the plainest and simplest sense that, you know, a toddler or an alien could figure out. Just um. a bunch of locks. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's it, right? Thousands like, and thousands <laughs> of master locks. Yeah. Just, it's just, just uh, a, yeah. Universal sign no, about see, do not enter. But see, about, Dan, the rate, whole, rate the whole you poke in that is like a lot of locks is like there might be something valuable in there. Let's get in there. Oh, you know? Okay, a bunch of locks yeah. with spikes on them. With, yeah, with with skulls and crossbones. <laughs> how about how about at the entrance of it, we just rig a trip wire that detonates a nuclear bomb so that nobody can get in. <laughs> yeah. Or could you example. imagine if it was like real, just like <laughs> it's like a shotgun with a string around the trigger? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like like from Fallout, like yeah, the rigged up trap. Did you yeah, did you ever be... see that that picture I saw? Uh, probably not because it was like a one off post on Reddit. But it was a dude who had just like jury rigged a security system in his store in like West Virginia. And it was just a, he had perfectly suspended a shotgun hanging in the air, pointed <laughs> directly at the door. So if you pulled the door open, it would just fire the shotgun oh, at you. No. That's, That's a felony. Crazy. It is, definitely. Yeah. And um, like I but, remember the comments saying that. But um, it's actually what sucks is that like um, something that a lot of people have done. Uh, that's very similar, but not not in any way lethal or da- lethal or dangerous, is um, like you can get like shotgun blanks, and some people mm, rig that like would be terrifying. Well, the point is basically like if you have a door like in your room or something like that, or or in a far away room in your house that you can't really be near, where if somebody was to like try and break in, you wouldn't hear it. Some people have rigged up doors and things like that where. You know, all you do is move a spring, move a string onto something before you go to bed, and then if somebody was to try to open that door during the night, it would basically set off a blank shotgun round that wouldn't do any damage, wouldn't hurt anybody or anything like that. It would, just, it, would just, it would wake you up. Yeah. Um, 
primitive alarm system type thing. That's actually also a felony in the same way, and you'd be charged for that. There's actually a gentleman in uh, in Maryland who uh, was killed by police not too long ago, and he ended up. Uh, one of the things the police had said um, was that he had like. Bo- you know, Bowie trapped his house with shotgun shells, which they didn't explain that they were blanks and they weren't going to hurt anybody. But you know, he would have been charged that if he had not been shot and killed by police in that raid. Just a giant, cushy, spring-loaded hand that when you open the door, it oh, just like, gently, like, like the jackass, yeah, yeah, it just gently pushes you away and oh, says, "Oh no, gently is no, not the word I would describe. Gently <laughs> is not yet." You know, just in a bunch of different languages. <laughs> just no. Okay. Well, so, I think we've gone far enough on this, but Kane, yeah. basically the reason that Yucca Mountain didn't happen Yucca, is please. no. Um, <laughs> so uh, it was actually um, a like state voter initiative in the state of Nevada that the citizens voted. They didn't want it. How selfish. I can't believe it. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, and <laughs> They Greg, don't before- want a giant nuclear waste dump in there. Uh, what do you mean? Uh, the, they state. dropped a thousand nuclear bombs on that right. state. Also, they your backyard Do you think the citizens were happy about that? Well, they sure didn't vote to stop that, did they? What the hell are they going to do? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, that time. Greg, before you get into wind scale, I just want to say one thing. Ooh, I okay. looked it up. I also have one fun fact okay. I found, too. Uh, it actually depends on the type of fuel used. Strontium-90 and cesium-137 have half-lives of about 30 years. Okay. But mm-hmm. plutonium-239, which is, isn't that mostly weapons that use plutonium-239? I think so, yeah. Yes. That has a half-life of 24,000 years. Oh! Whoa! Holy cow. Quite, quite a jump. And that's jump. just half. Remember, that's just half. Yeah, that's half right. radiation. So. <laughs> God. Yeah. So my fun fact... Uh, I looked up the Idaho National Laboratory, mm-hmm. which I, I remember I met a guy that worked there. He definitely couldn't talk about what he did, though. It was like, <laughs> inter- it was like kind of interesting. Um, two jobs I want to highlight: one, energy threats program manager. Yes, that sounds very important. Um, but more important, they are hiring a painter if you're looking for a job. <laughs> so if you want to go as be a painter, as long as it's not lead paint, I'm fine. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I think that's the least you gotta worry about. No, it's it's strontium paint. You're, Don't worry about yeah. it. You're actually it's, painting it's the locks on all those uh, concrete vaults. Yeah. Like, the, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> do not enter. Look at the lock. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Greg. All right. Let's well, talk about the awful country of England. The starting point for my story, really. I mean, I know I typically tend to dig back pretty far as far as the. Uh, you know, the lead up to my stories, but I won't go too terribly far. What were you going to say, Dan? Just 1492. <laughs> Not quite that far. No. Um, so, I mean, being such an early uh, nuclear incident here, uh, really, it, you know, it doesn't really serve us well if we don't mention where the origin story comes, which is um, really some of the most early nuclear um, discoveries and experiments. So uh, something that a lot of people don't know is actually that, uh, so for before I even get into this, the wind scale incident was an incident that happened in northern England in 1957. So um, just understand that uh, throughout the rest of this, we're going to be talking about the British government, the British government's nuclear program, uh, et cetera. So that's going to play a key role in this, uh, and all the people we're talking about here are going to be British, um, you know, outside involvement. So um, You better do an accent. Definitely not. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I am terrible at accents. So, um, 
But yeah, especially Northern English, that'd be very difficult for me to pull off. They sound very strange. Yeah. Um, but so um, North. <laughs> the North Norfers of, uh, of England. <laughs> Simple as. <laughs> so um, what I was going to say that a lot of people don't know is that actually Britain started their nuclear weapons program prior to the United States. Um, it was actually a program called. Um, <laughs> let me let me let me double check on this because it's got a it's got a really, a really funny name. Um, Second place. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was called Tube Alloy. Damn. It was called Tube Alloys. <laughs> really, a uh, really clever nickname there. Yeah, what? Um, yeah. Piccadilly but, this. Piccadilly that. Basically, <laughs> basically the British government. Um, that was their atomic bomb project. Uh, and this is after the, the whole predecessor to that was the fact that um, a uh, Lice Meitner and Otto Frisch, uh, who were, uh, there's actually there's like six different names here. I'm not even going to bother. But basically a bunch of scientists at the University of Birmingham in Northern England uh, calculated the critical mass of a metallic sphere of uranium-235 found that uh, they were like, hey guys, only one to ten kilos of this stuff might explode with the power of like thousands of tons of dynamite. We should look <laughs> <Yeah>. into this. <laughs> and uh, so the British government was like, "Yes, let's start an atomic bomb project," which was two alloys. So, uh, and then um, obviously, everybody, pretty much everybody's familiar with the Manhattan Project, but um, uh, something that not a lot of people may not know about is uh, something called the Quebec Agreement, which uh, was in August of nineteen forty-three which merged tube alloys with the Manhattan Project. Nice. So basically just pumped a whole bunch of British engineering effort into the Manhattan Project, and if they had not done that, a lot of people basically suspect that the uh, you know, the bomb would not have come in time and we might not have been able to end World War II as we did. Um, but uh, the British contribution to the Manhattan Project was significant. Like, seriously, like, if it were not for those British scientists... Like I said, it would not have happened in the timeline that it did, uh, which led the British to be like, well, hey, let's, uh, let's get a little piece of the pie, you know, once the war ended. But didn't exactly shake out that way. The U.S. kind of gave the bird to the British, uh, in a sense, with the uh, <laughs> what are you going to passage do? of uh, <laughs> yeah, with the passage moves. of <laughs> with the passage of. Uh, no relation to the wrestling man, but the McMahon Act of 1946, which was also known as the Atomic Energy Act of 1946, which basically uh, f- outlawed any sharing of atomic technical data with any other country, including the the uh, the Brits. And, uh, a uh, lot of people, yeah, exactly. A lot of people uh, basically describe the special re- relationship between Britain and the United States as becoming a lot less special immediately after World War II. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Such a lukewarm description. <laughs> it is. A lot, a lot less special. Well, it's very British if you, you know. Stiff upper yeah. lip, all that. Exactly. So uh, the British government kind of saw it as like, you know, a British or a uh, United States isolationism thing where we're kind of like bring that back up, you know, which they weren't too fond of, but. Anyway, basically, um, the Brits were like, all right, well, if they're not going to work with us, well, I guess we got to do do some nuclear stuff of our own at home, right? So um, there's some other background that's important here. So um, obviously today we're talking about the the wind scale 
um, nuclear uh, plant. But uh, that facility had not always been a nuclear plant. So um, the site of the wind scale um, piles, as they are called, um, pile one and pile two, known today as Sellafield. Uh, this facility was originally created as a um, a bomb production plant during World War II. Um, or actually, you know, maybe even World War One originally. I can't recall. But uh, it was a munitions plant originally. That's the important thing. Non-nuclear, just uh, regular old bombs. Um, and then after it was decommissioned, um, it was turned into actually a... Uh, a textile production factory where they created a rayon, which is like a um, synthetic fiber substance. But uh, eventually, it's what Hawaiian um, shirts are made out of is what the classic Hawaiian shirt material is rayon. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, that kind uh, of soft synthetic cotton. Yeah, rayon's a hmm. an old product. Actually, a lot older than I thought. Like I saw some pictures of machines that produced rayon that were from like 1905, which mm-hmm. was interesting. But uh, anyway. Um, so eventually, um, the British government uh, acquired that uh, that facility again, and then um, turned it into the facility that is now known as Windscale. So there was a lot of stuff going on internationally at this point in time. So um, I had mentioned that the the U.S. was not working with Britain at this point on uh, nuclear stuff. So there's a lot of pressure for Britain to kind of step up their nuclear game big time. Um. And uh, so this 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 plant was uh, intended to be a nuclear power plant as well as a uh, nuclear weapons production facility, or at least a uranium enrichment plant. So um, what I don't believe is that I don't believe from the get-go that it was necessarily intended to produce fuel the way that it was, or at least to the degree that it was. Um, one of the th- one of the problems was that nuclear material production theory and design was quickly outpacing how quickly they could, you know, build stuff like this, right? So even though they started production, by the time it was actually put into service, it was pretty much obsolete already anyway, which led to them kind of pushing this building beyond its intended design. But, uh, so... Kane, your pretty much entire story was focused around the cooling system of the uh, the reactor, correct? Yes. So that's a common thread you'll see in a lot of nuclear incidents. Cooling yeah. a nuclear reaction is obviously the most important thing in a nuclear power. Well, plant. you can ju- you can make nuclear stuff explode, no problem. <clears throat> it's keeping it contained and cooled down. That's exactly. the actual work. You know? Harnessing harnessing the power of nuclear energy. Yeah. Is, is, is like cooling it is really the key to that. So. Um, if you guys want to really... Well, you know, that's kind of nice. I'm sorry to cut you off, but it's kind of nice that the... I'm sure it's not quite this simple, but you cool it down, and then you do have to use water also just to generate the electricity, you know, the steam to spin the yeah. turbines, but... Well, you mentioned water. Guess what was not used to cool this reactor? Water. What? This was an oh. air-cooled reactor. Okay. Oh, I think I'm already High sensing speed. what might be going wrong <laughs> <laughs> at the wind scale. The yeah, wind. so, oh, God. Um, so yeah, uh, basically, um, so prior to this, the only, like, you know, real use case of nuclear energy that these engineers had to work off of 
was uh, are you any of you guys familiar with the Hanford site in Washington? No, um, I don't think so. No. Uh, massive source of nuclear pollution in, in Washington, but it's, uh, I believe it's on, is it the Spokane River, I think? Sure. Something like that. Some major river in, in like eastern or central Washington. Uh, it's in Hanford, Washington. So anyway, that was like what they were using as their example was the Hanford site, and the Hanford site was a water-cooled reactor. So basically the the Hanford, the, the, B, the B reactor was the name of the reactor at the Hanford site, uh, and that that reactor used a constant supply of water, water cooling through the the channels in uh, the reactor core. So, uh, in both the the B reactor in Hanford and the wind scale reactor, uh, the reactor core was uh, made out of graphite. That's, so that's pretty typical, right? Yeah, I mean it's it's made it, graphite is a form of carbon. It's pretty stable, um, mm. really good for heat, that kind of thing. So I thought I kind of uh, recognized that from. Like Chernobyl, Chernobyl, like other yeah. sort of There's stories. Lots of nuclear reactors use graphite cores. Okay. Um, but uh, I'm just like so, tr- trying to spot another problem. You know, like <laughs> I'm yeah. on the lookout. Loss of coolant accidents is like that. Like as we were saying a second ago, one of the most major concerns for any nuclear power facility. Do you, do you just want to hear how they dealt with that problem at Hanford? <laughs> Sand. They built a 30 mile escape road. If there was a if there was a meltdown, they just leave. <laughs> I'm not joking. I don't Seriously, necessarily blame thirty them mile con- yeah. the thirty mile containment, and this is like you know we're talking about the 1940s in eastern Washington. Nobody lived there except for maybe some apple farmers, but you know fuck them anyway, right? Right. They they weren't uh, like how about they them apples? Like how do we contain this? They're, oh Jesus Christ, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so basically, uh, the British. Uh, you know, authorities that were doing this were like, we don't have anywhere in Britain where we can put 30 miles around anything. <laughs> so what do we do? It's a very British problem. <laughs> well, the the real answer they should have done was do this in Australia because there's plenty of spots for that. Yeah. Oh, dear God. And just one that big jail. What, side note, that is where they would eventually test their first nuclear weapon. But um, Nevada, Australia. Same thing. Well, potato. they would have. They would have. They would have done Nevada if they could have. But um, that was not. Unfortunately, an the citizens we, voted against that. Oh <laughs> my goodness! They would have done Nevada if they had a strong, chance. Strong return. At the Hanford site, what they did instead was uh, basically they they were like, all right, instead of the loss of coolant accident, let's get rid of the coolant altogether, and build a four hundred foot tall chimney which would create enough airflow to cool the reactor under normal operating conditions, basically no, it based on airflow <laughs> and convection. It actually did under normal operating circumstances. Oh, so, um, like, the, the engineering for that was, was solid enough, at least, but there's some other problems that we'll get to in a second here. So the chimney was arranged that so it would pull air through the channels in the graphite core, which cooled the fuel via fins on the cartridges. So basically, um, they were using uh, plutonium, uh, plutonium rods, and then the rods were slotted into these, can- I think canister was the word that was used. Basically, there's a l- aluminum tube that fit very closely on the outside of the plutonium tube, and there was cooling fins that would go radially outside of that. And then mm. those were inserted into a circular hole inside of the radi- or the, the core. Uh, so the, the fins would uh, basically just get the heat to go out and then into the, into the graphite core. So... Um, and the chimneys would draw air through the fins and, and cool them off. 
So uh, the way that they, this would work is basically that, you know, you have this giant block of graphite, right, with a whole bunch of ho uh, holes bored through it, and you would insert the rods, and the way that you would get the rods out is you would just put more rods in, and it would push the very final rod out of the end, which would drop into water, which would cool mm. it off. Great idea, right? Well, the problem was that there was a massive design flaw with the way that they designed this system where, um, like, this is, like, we're still talking in the early stages, like, prior to this even being powered up, right? So, like, you know, well, it, you push it through, it just drops into the water, right? Once they actually started the site, they figured out that um, it was possible for, if you push the rods through, this is, like, a regular thing where they'd have to push new rods through and the old ones would drop down the coolant. They figured out that occasionally the rods would, instead of dropping into the water, would miss and then fall onto the ground and release oh, radiation. dear God. Not only did this happen occasionally, it happened so often that they found out that sometimes they'd just have to send somebody in there and they'd sweep tons of rods into the coolant off of the floor. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Super bad. And, I mean, so we're talking, bad. this is in the 50s. Like, we didn't really know a whole lot about nuclear power at that point. But, like, I mean, looking back on this, this is... blow up a city. Come on. <laughs> yes, but just the safety of little things like this is not yeah. fully understood. Gosh. Anywho, so, um, yeah, really bad. But there's other things, like, so during construction, a physicist, by, a physicist by the name of Terrence Price also considered the possibility that a fuel cartridge could split open if maybe, like, you really forcefully put in a new fuel cartridge. But that is actually what ended up causing that whole thing with the, uh, with the fuel rods like falling out or whatever. But, um, one of the biggest problems with the fuel rods falling onto the floor there was that if those fuel rods fell out the way they did, if they fell out with enough force, they could possibly break on the floor, oh, God. which would cause some real hot uranium to catch fire. <laughs> okay. These uh, and remember that remember that they're forcing air through this so that fire would then blow fine uranium oxide dust up through the chimney and then out into the english countryside the hero of this story i want to make this very clear a man who does, whose name does not get enough recognition i already talked to Kane about this a little bit it was a man by the name of sir john cockroft uh oh yeah colorful name yeah um <laughs> Almost as good as a town that's very near this location, which I feel compelled to, to mention. Um, there's a town just uh, just about 10 miles away from here called Cockermouth. Hmm. <laughs> well, uh, real good. But uh, anyway, back to Windscale. So um, Sir John Cockroft um, was like, he was one of the like, one of the most key British physicists for... Uh, like that was involved in like he he was like the guy that split like split an atom you know like he's like one of the one of the guys that was like key in the manhattan project just like insanely influential nuclear physicist um and he shows up and they had just finished building these uh these chimneys right the dude who had raised the possibility of the fire what was his name again terrence price he listened to that guy he's like you're absolutely right we need to put some filters on those chimneys like now the way to do it properly would have been to install them at the base of the chimney. Like that's like, if you had just been constructing them, that would be the smart place to put them. But since the chimneys had already been built, uh, 
all they could do is put the filters at the very top, 400 feet up in the air. Mm. Where they basically would have to construct the filters on the ground and then winch them all the way to the top and then install them. Which is Sounds pretty a, ineffective. A, expensive, and B, giant pain in the ass. <laughs> and there was so much pushback from the people building the plant that they almost didn't put them on. But Cockroft was basically like, I'm going to fucking leave if we don't do this. Like, you guys can build this stupid shit on your own if you want to, but you're going to cause a problem. You're going you're gonna to kill people if you don't do this. Uh, it was actually, they were so unpopular, they got known as Cockroft's Folly. <laughs> which, folly they were not, if you haven't already picked that up. Eventually, as we, I mean, if, if I haven't already mentioned this, the incident that we're going to talk about here is a fire. And uh, during the fire, these filters ended up trapping about 95% of the radioactive dust that would have made its way into the into the English countryside and pretty much saved northern England from becoming a nuclear wasteland. This is the most British British quote ever. Not most British, but Terrence Price, the guy who originally created, you know, like brought up the concern for a fire, was later quoted as saying, the word folly did not seem appropriate after the accident. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> What a, what a quote. Uh, so, scooping up all these uh, all these fuel cartridges was actually, like, it became a routine thing. Yeah, also, on top of that, there was also multiple instances where fuel cartridges became stuck in the channels and then burst open while they were still in the core. All of this information about this was kept secret. And uh, it's 1950-whatever, and they just don't know what the hell they're doing. Yeah. That's like, clear, you know? Also, people, like, a scientist by the name of Frank Leslie also, like, went and took, like, went with a Geiger counter and walked around the village and around the site where this was all being done and had figured out that there was radiation, like, higher higher than normal radiation in the village and in the facility all over the place. Basically, they were leaking radioactive stuff all the time, but none of that was released to the British public. So. Good. I'm going to speed this up just because I, I feel like I'm getting too into the weeds with the actual reactor stuff. So um, one thing that is a little complex that I'll have to explain really quick is something called Wigner energy, W-I-G-N-E-R. Um, basically, at this point, not a lot of people really knew what was going to happen to graphite when you bombard it with neutrons. Not a really well-studied thing at that point. Um, so it's named after a Hungarian-American physicist by the name of uh, Eugene Wigner. Um, and he basically figured out that this is again, really new research at the time, figured out that when, when you do bombard, uh, graphite with, uh, neutrons, it kind of screws up its crystalline structure, which builds up potential energy. And if you allow that to accumulate, it could spontaneously release into a powerful rush of heat. Not good when you're talking about the inside of a nuclear reactor. So uh, the American physicists had long warned the British about this problem and uh, basically had said this could even possibly re- lead to a fire in the reactor. So the, the design, design of the windscale facility um, had a fatal flaw in the sense that it was using graphite and they didn't really, you know, this was a possibility for this Wigner energy to build up. This obviously worried the operators of the windscale plant uh, who pretty much figured out that the only viable solution was heating up the reactor core, which is a process called annealing. 
uh, because when graphite is heated beyond 250 degrees centigrade, it turns, it becomes plastic in this, like the physical sense. Um, and the Wigner dislocations can kind of relax back into their normal structure. So what you're essentially doing is heating up the core and cooling it down. And what you want is for that to be uniform throughout the entire core. So you'd like take temperatures in different sections of the core. And as long as everything was even, everything was good. So basically just dissipate the energy and everything would be okay. But as you know, they did this pretty frequently at wind scale to make sure that things weren't you know going wrong. But over the years that wind scale continued to operate, it became increasingly difficult to force that energy out of the core. Uh, which, as you might imagine, is leading to our fateful day here. Oh. <laughs> Things are um, starting to heat up. On top of that, um, part of this facility was like intended to be using, you know, our part of the intention of this facility was to be a production facility for nuclear weapons. What the Brits had not figured out was that, like, you know, or had not planned on, I believe it was right before they tested their first nuclear bomb, the United States was just like, hey, by the way, we got this new cool thing called a hydrogen bomb. It's way cooler than, (laughs) basically, like, the Brits were, like, about to, like, be like, we're the new nuclear power, too. We're just like you, USSR and and the United States. And then the U.S. is like, nope. Whips out their big stick, lays it on the table. We got hydrogen bombs. Sorry, Britain. Yeah, exactly. And so Britain was like, well, shit, I guess we got to build hydrogen bombs, too. Which, uh, as you might imagine, takes some different materials than than regular uh, plutonium. So the decision was made to try and use uh, wind scale to produce tritium. They didn't have enough time to build a new reactor. Excuse me. Um, yeah, so they the wind scale pile one fuel loads were modified, so they added enriched uranium and lithium magnesium uh, into the core, which uh, would eventually produce tritium during neutron bombardment. Uh, the problem with this is that all of those materials were highly flammable, <laughs> and uh, a lot of the several people on the staff at wind scale had kind of raised the issue. They're like, "Hey." Um, guess think this might catch on fire <laughs> but uh, that that kind of got brushed aside for you know god and country of course it did so um for god and country they uh the brits tried to test their for well uh, there was also another piece of background information here that i left out but uh part of the reason they were in such a rush to begin testing uh these these weapons was that uh there was a moratorium placed on new nuclear testing in 1958 that the u.s and ussr had been kind of working on and the UK was going to have to pretty much abide by that. Otherwise, they were going to face massive international scrutiny. So there was a huge rush to try and get this done by 1958. Uh, the Brits tested their first H-bomb in 1957 in Kiramati um, in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and it failed. Uh, and after that, the decision was made to build a large fusion-boosted fission weapon not only required tritium, but it required huge quantities of tritium, five times as much as the first bomb that they had produced. Mm. So they basically had to really pump up production of tritium at the wind scale facility because um, they uh, were, and, like, and rapidly approaching. facility with, like, a history of just terrible... Poor design and design, safe, yeah. safety incidents. <laughs> so Great. really, really poor, poor decision doing this. 
uh, largely driven by international politics, which is never what you want to be driving your uh, your nuclear production Especially and safety when you're requirements. A little tiny, like you know, fifty years off of your imperial status, country, you know, trying to compete against the United States and the Soviet Union. Like good yeah. fucking luck. So, like I said, they had to be producing tritium as rapidly as possible, right? So to produce to boost their production rates rates they uh used a little trick um that had been useful for increasing plutonium production in uh past incidents. We may not be nuclear engineers, but we can definitely understand what I'm about to say here. I'm they, ready. Re- they reduced the size of the cooling fins on the fuel cartridges. Oh. Nice. (laughs) So the temperature of the fuel loads increased, which caused a small but useful increase in their uh, neutron enrichment rates, which basically just allowed them to produce fuel faster. Well, or (laughs) nuclear material faster here, the tritium that we're talking about. So um, the technical staff warned people yet again and uh, again, brushed aside. So uh, the director of Windscale, a man by the name of Christopher Hinton, uh, actually uh, quit and left the facility in frustration uh, for not being heard with his uh, safety requirements or his safety concerns, excuse me. After they did one production run in pile one, they were like, all right, well, the safety issues are negligible, so let's pump this up to full-scale production, right? Um, but uh, by you know bringing that temperature up beyond where it was designed to be, um, the biggest problem there was that they altered the distribution of heat throughout the core, which remember I had mentioned that is very important that you, you know, heat up and cool down the radiator in an even fashion to get rid of that, uh, that Wigner energy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the thermocouples that they used to measure the core temperatures, um, were positioned based on the original heat distribution, not the new ones. And basically missed measuring the temperature of the core where it was the hottest because they didn't, anti- you know, it was never designed for this new new configuration. Uh, I just have issue with the fact that they were like, oh, yeah, the... the they the, were playing it real fast and loose. Yeah, yeah, the, Oh, these problems are negligible, so let's scale it up. Yep, exactly. So, well, the next heading here is just called Ignition. So <laughs> Jeez. Wow. we'll get right into it. So on the 7th of October, 1957... Uh, pile one operators noticed that the reactor was uh heating up a little bit more than normal, so they ordered one of those Wigner releases, you know, where they heat up the core and cool it down, trying mm-hmm. try and make sure that it's all doing it evenly, right? Uh, and eight times in the past they had done that, and uh, you know, it was known that it would cause it to heat up evenly and then cool down evenly, right? So, um, during that attempt. An anomaly happened. The temperatures began falling across the reactor core, except for in a channel numbered 2053, mm. whose, temperature, whose temperature was rising. The conclusion was made that 2053 was releasing energy, but none of the others were. And then on the morning of October the 8th, uh, the following day, the decision was made to try a second Wigner release, uh, which actually caused the temperature of the entire core to rise which uh, they thought indicated a successful release. So early on the morning of the 10th of October, it was suspected that something unusual was going on. 
the temperature in the core was supposed to gradually fall as the Wigner release energy ended, but the uh, the equipment that they were looking at was showing that something more ambiguous was going on. Uh, one thermocouple indicated the core temperature was rising, uh, and some of them were indicating it was falling, so it was kind of, they weren't really sure what was going on there. So as the process continued, um, the temperature continued to rise and eventually reached 400 degrees Celsius. Uh, pretty pretty hot. That's pretty hot. Um, that's, that's toasty, you know. Uh, we'll get into some hotter temperatures later. But uh, anyway, in an effort to cool the pile, uh, they sped up the cooling fans, and airflow increased. Um, so they had radiation detectors that were up in the chimney, and um, the radiation detectors started going off. They're like, oh, hey, we're getting some radiation up here, right? Um, so they started thinking about it. They're like, uh, we're thinking a cartridge has burst inside of the uh, inside of the core. Does Again, that readings it, like past the filter or not yet? I actually, I don't know if it was before or after. It was in the chimney somewhere, mm. but... Um, Either way, 95% of it would have gotten caught by the filters, but anyway. Um, like, having a burst cartridge inside of the core wasn't necessarily a fatal problem, and like I mentioned, that it happened before. But what the operators did not know, that was not a burst. Uh, the cartridge that in 2053 had actually caught fire. And that was the source of the heating in channel 2053, not the way we released <laughs> Indeed. So, um, as I mentioned before, their reaction was to cool the, cool it down, right? Which they used fans to do. They sped up the fans. What happens <laughs> when you blow air onto a fire? You oh fan God. the flames. It's like opening so, a door. Yeah, exactly. So, um, the fire then spread to surrounding fuel channels, and soon the, uh, the radioactivity that was up being measured up in the chimney just started shooting up through the roof. Um... A foreman who was actually arriving from work that morning noticed that smoke was coming out of the chimney, <laughs> which is really not good because nobody yeah, nobody had been nobody had been informed of the fire yet, and he's just like, "Oh, that's not fucking good." <laughs> um, so anyway, the uh, the core temperature continued to rise, and um, so yeah, pretty much everybody started to suspect that the core is on fire. So um, they uh, they tried to examine it with a remote scanner, but uh, that kind of jammed up on them. And a man by the name of Tom Hughes, who was second in command to the reactor manager, suggested examining the reactor personally, like himself. Mm. So he put on protective gear, and he and another operator went to uh, the charge face of the reactor and uh, took out a fuel channel inspection plug um, to uh, that was like right next to a thermocouple, one of the uh, the temperature measuring devices, um, and. Uh, they saw that the fuel was red hot. Like saw glowing and hot? With their eyes. Like like the following quote. An inspection plug was taken out, said Tom Hughes in a later interview, and we saw to our complete horror four channels of fuel gro- glowing bright cherry red. <laughs> so uh, at that point, there was no doubt that the reactor was on fire and had been for 48 hours. Ooh. Um, and it's not over yet either. So, um, the reactor manager, a man by the name of Tom Tuhoy, or Tui, uh, put on full protective equipment and a breathing apparatus and climbed 80 feet up a ladder to the top of the reactor building. And this is one of the most ballsy things I've ever heard of in my entire life. Uh, 
he stood atop the reactor lid to examine the rear of the reactor, uh, the dis- the discharge face of the reactor. We know how that goes. <laughs> By doing so, he was risking his life and exposing himself to a massive amount of radiation. Here's a here's a quote that he had. I have no doubt that it was even sucking air in through the chimney at this point to try and maintain itself. All right, now this is. Ah, oh, shit. I'm I'm reading it later. Uh, that's this is a later quote, but basically he's describing the the process of looking at the reactor at this point. Um, the quote I'm reading has to do with they eventually decide that the the correct course of action to try and stop the uh, the fire. Well, we're getting real long in the tooth here. I'll, I'll cut this down a little bit. Basically, um, they tried to put the fire out with water, um, which they didn't know if that was going to work very well or not. What they should have um, been doing in the first place. Well, yeah, pretty much. But um, they eventually also shut the fans off and closed everything off. And so that's where this quote is coming from. So this is after they had shut all the air off. He's like, I have no doubt that it was even sucking air in through the chimney at this point to try and maintain itself. First the flames went, then the flames reduced, and the glow began to die down. I went up to check several times until I was satisfied that the fire was out. I did stand to one side, sort of hopefully, but if you're staring straight into the core of of a shutdown reactor, you're going to get quite a bit of radiation. (laughs) This is the reactor manager. He's definitely understating this. This dude took a lot of radiation. Yeah, like I said, they used fans to try and uh, to try and sh- uh, shut down at first. They also tried uh, creating a fire break by basically ejecting all the damaged fuel cartridges that were around the fire, and they also attempted to eject some of the um, the rods from the very heart of the fire by bludgeoning the melted cartridges <laughs> through the reactor to try and get these red hot or. Well, at this point, white hot cartridges into the cooling pond. Yeah, God. Um, I can't believe they're that close. But that was was impossible. And so, uh, yeah, the fuel rods just would not budge. Um, So the poles that they were using to try and bludgeon, when they pulled them out, the end of the poles were like red hot. And actually one was melting by the time they had pulled it back out. So after they shut off the fans and tried to bludgeon those out, they next tried to use carbon dioxide. Uh, they tried to pump in carbon dioxide, but that was just, it was not enough carbon dioxide. They weren't able to do it. Um, <laughs> Did they have uh, any terminally ill people on hand? <laughs> maybe, yeah. Some, some that stage four cancer that's people. That's who they were doing the bludgeoning get, with. Yeah. yeah. Not that I know of. Never <laughs> learn. Never learn. Um, so on the, fr- on the morning of Friday, uh, the 11th of October, so at this point, <laughs> we're four days into this incident, that's when they finally decide to use, to use water. Uh, this is when the fire was at its absolute worst, um, and 11 tons of uranium were on fire. Excuse um, me? <laughs> 11 tons, yes. Just um, burning openly? Not quite openly, but yes, <laughs> burning. Yeah. Uh, temperatures were becoming pretty extreme. Uh, one of the thermocouples, which, again, were not positioned at the hottest points, registered 1,300 degrees Celsius. And uh, were str- is that like a boiling point of steel up there, pretty much? <laughs> Something like that. But uh, anyway, the biological shield around this reactor, basically the only thing keeping the outside world from becoming extremely re- irradiated, was uh, in severe danger of collapsing. So this is the point at which they decide to use water. Um, 
the only reason they had not used water up until now is because like reactors designed to use water as a coolant are designed for that so that they can minimize risks. But um, it's not like splashing a bucket of water on it. Yeah, which is pretty much what they're about to do. So um, this this process was certainly risky because uh, the idea was basically that molten metal, uh, including radioactive metals, the oxidize when they get into contact with water, strips oxygen from the water molecules, which leaves also free hydrogen, which can mix with incoming air and then explode which would basically just explode the containment. Uh, would have been way worse than Chernobyl if that had happened. Uh, like, this was seriously, this this was at risk of becoming a worse nuclear incident than Chernobyl. Spectacular. But Eepers. they didn't have any other options, so they decided to go ahead with the plan and douse this thing with water. Uh, they took about a dozen fire hoses, and they cut the nozzles off the fire hoses uh, and actually just inserted the lines into Wouldn't it be scaffolding. easier to simply unscrew the nozzles? I don't think they had time for that. <laughs> what if, um, what but, if they just unplugged it? What if it well, listen, yeah, so here's what they did. Plugged it back Guys, in. Yeah, just here's what they the did. Cartridge. They cut off the nozzles of these fire hoses, inserted them into scaffolding poles, and then put the scaffolding poles into the fuel channels about three feet above the heart of the, heart of the fire. That's actually pretty smart. Yeah. And so, um, Tui... <sighs> The guy who had climbed the reactor and looked at looked at its face, you know, <laughs> uh, looked at it in the face, stared death uh, once, in the once again, once again, climbed onto the reactor shielding, uh, and ordered the water to turn turn be turned on and listened carefully uh, for any sign of a hydrogen reaction as the pressure was increased. So, again, I'm sorry, I I got. This is so hey, complicated that I'm getting the timing. Take uh, take your time out. to take your time to figure out what you need. I got I got something to say because I was looking up the melting point of steel. I said boiling uh, point, but the boiling point of steel is quite quite higher. Yeah, okay. Um, I looked that up the, too. The melting point is actually about 1300 degrees Celsius. Damn. And but I'm not going to read this this article I'm on, but I would like to read the addendum at the end. This is an addendum on August the 26th, 2011, on this this page about the. Uh, melting point of steel. I answered this question many years ago and has been referenced in many different websites and reports. There has been one misinterpretation that has come from that. Many sites refer to the difference in the melting point of steel and the burning temperature of jet fuel as proof that the World Trade Center could not have fallen from the aircraft fires. <laughs> what those authors fail to note is that while steel melts at around 1300 degrees Celsius, it begins to lose its strength at a much lower temperature. The steel structure of the World Trade Center would not have to melt in order for the buildings to lose their structural integrity. Steel can be soft at 538 degrees Celsius, well below the burning temperature of jet fuel. God, that's nothing. That's actually, I'm going to say, and it's not like I've ever looked for it, that is the first time I've ever seen a response to jet yeah. fuel melting steel beams. Yeah, that's true. Which is surprising because like, the way he describes it is not like ludicrous at all. No, no. It's like, oh, that makes sense. That, yeah, that was, a lot that was of something I. Yeah, okay. That was something I pretty much knew, but well described. Yeah. So no. anyway, back back to our regularly scheduled programming here. Um, sorry, I just want to get through this. <laughs> so, the part that I've been waffling on here is basically if the water, turning on the water had come first, or if the shutting off of the air come first. But uh, the answer is the water came first. So, uh, since the water did not successfully extinguish the fire. Granted, it did not cause an explosion, so that was very good. Tui, the guy who had been staring this reactor in the eye, 
ordered everybody out of the reactor building except for himself and the fire chief. Whoa. Um, and they were the ones that were there, and they were like, we're going to shut off all of the cooling and ventilation entering the reactor. They were basically preparing for the worst. And uh, they also evacuated all the people in the local area, or, or considered it at least, excuse me. It's a pretty big difference. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at this. It was considered, <laughs> not not done. Sorry. They really <laughs> no, I mean, just They really them. should have put that at the beginning of the sentence. Anyway, so he basically was, like, climbing up and down several times this 80-foot ladder uh, and was, like, you know, basically monitoring the, the flames uh, as far as, you know, were they going away or not. And that's that's where that quote I was reading before came in about sucking the air in through the chimney. So basically the fire was being snuffed out slowly um, and uh, they were, you know, all, they were doing all they can to prevent it from sucking in any more air. They also were continuing to flow water through the radiator at this or, or, or through the, uh, through the radiator, uh, through the reactor core for a further 24 hours. And uh, they continued pumping water through it until it was just cold to the touch. So after all, they turned off the water hoses. Uh, that all that contaminated water then spilled out onto the floor throughout the uh, the facility, which is not good. But, Yummy. Um, so uh, what they decided to do with the facility was that they decided to seal off the reactor tank itself, and it has never been unsealed since the accident. So there are still fifteen tons of uranium fuel that are contained within the reactor core. Uh, and they are still there today. Um, there is the fear that if they disturb the fuel that is still there, it could possibly reignite uh, due to the fact that there is the presence of uh, pyrophoric uranium hydride, which is a very evil-sounding substance. Extraordinarily. Um, that was formed during the original water dousing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, apparently some very modern uh, research has uh, pretty much figured out that uh, those fears are somewhat unfounded and it is pretty unlikely that that actually may happen. Uh, they're planning on doing final decommissioning of the reactor in 2037. Which is quite a ways. Wow. Yeah. It's almost 100 years exactly. after. So, um, yeah, so basically the, the aftermath of this was that um, there's a, basically a release of 740 terabec- or, uh, terabecules, 20,000 curies of iodine-131, uh, as well as 594 curies of cesium-137, and 324,000 curies of xenon-133 uh, into the uh, English countryside. I wish so, I, like, for one, they use such absurd units to measure radiation, and it's like, I can't even conceptualize any of them. Ra- rads, curies, nothing. None of it makes sense to me. Yeah, but it's I a hard. I get. Um, I get that it isn't like a. How do you quantify that? You know, like in a, in a sense that would make sense. You probably can't. background radiation is about the only thing. You know. Yeah, I guess if you compare, it, but even then, it's like what like is a, background radiation? A scale. Like, yeah, like the Richter scale or, you know, hurricane. That's a good classification idea. Or something. Um, one of the most concerning things to me in here is that, at the time, the UK government was being. Um, run by the Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan. Mac, uh, uh, he ordered that the original reports on the fire would have to be heavily censored. And uh, basically everything that happened here was kept secret. The worst part of this, in my mind, is that 
significant amounts of polonium two ten were released during the fire. Do either of you, or do any of you guys know anything about polonium two ten? No. That is the substance that was used to kill Alexander Litnivenko by the Russian government. Uh, oh. Yeah. Poisoned. It's like it's poisonous in like tiniest quantities. Yeah. I am so surprised that nobody died from that during this. But yeah, no, it's very significant contamination had been had occurred here. This was basically the single largest nuclear incident uh, by any Western nation until Three Mile Island. Nice. Which fits in very well here. Uh, Three Mile Island released 25 times more xenon. Uh, xenon-135, though, in the one-scale fire. But um, also way less iodine, cesium, and strontium emissions. So, yeah. A little bit here, a little bit there, you know, like they're both bad. Um, and uh, the atmospheric releases of Xenon 133 um, by the Windscale Fire were very, very, very similar in size to the Fukushima Daiichi natural uh, nuclear disaster Damn. in Japan. Um, but uh, yeah, so this was basically, it was absolutely Britain's worst nuclear incident. Could have been worse than Chernobyl had, like, little teeny tiny things gone differently. And it was the worst until Three Mile Island. Uh, in the end, um, basically, nobody immediately died from radiation poisoning or anything like that. But um, the end result was about 100 to 240 people dying of cancer long term. Bummer. Um, but the craziest thing to me is that that dude who went and stared the reactor in the face like six times lived to 90 years old. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's like the divers diver. at Chernobyl. They There's like two of them still alive today. And one of yeah. them died of natural causes or something. It was like exactly. Some, totally like, unrelated. It was like a heart attack or something. Yeah. Sometimes just Easy. you get lucky, you know, and some people are just resilient. But uh, yeah, no, um, a lot of really foolish choices. And honestly, had the British government not pressured this facility into the production that it was doing at the time, Despite the design flaws of the reactor, everything probably would have gone just fine had they not pressured them to create more and more fissile material for, for weapons. Sure. So, I guess man's desire to kill just... Or, maybe politics. not kill... Uh, become a world player, really, is what it is. Because they, they weren't producing this weapon to try and you know knock out another nation. They were doing it because they wanted to be a world leader again, you know? Yeah, there's a big British desire to be one of the international yeah, superpowers, and for sure, and at this point, nuclear power or nuclear strength was the only way to do so. Any okay. closing thoughts on that? Anything you guys have to say about that? No, that was pretty straightforward. I mean, that was also like what a pea-brained operation, you know. And, That's uh, exactly in hindsight, but you know, like this is 1957. Yeah, like. I think much. that yeah. the pea-brained people were the people that didn't listen to the scientists. The scientists knew the problem the entire time. Uh-huh. When you you have a good point, like uh, about it was it was very early. Like you ever seen stuff about like the Demon Corps? Oh yeah, I how they were just like they were just using screwdrivers to separate yeah. a you know a core. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just, think, just like handling cesium or whatever. And just propping a screwdriver in between so it didn't go critical. Jeez. Until it did. Yeah. 
Well, I think we should have Ryan on for that one because I'm sure he would love to talk about that. Yeah, that would be a very good topic. But, uh, yeah, so Paul and Dan fell asleep half an hour ago, so let's uh, (laughs) let's get out of here. All right. Well, I'm going to hit stop, but... uh, No, no. Whoa. Are you crazy? Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa, Jeez. We got another oh, yeah, half hour let's to just, go. Let's just let's let it breathe. We, we <laughs> got we got to say goodbye. Uh, I would say for timeliness' sake, unrelated. Uh, if you haven't seen the documentary Hypernormalization, please check it out. It's very good, very worth the watch. It's on YouTube for free. And the creator of that just put out a new series that dives further into those themes and explores it in a decade by decade basis per episode called "Can't Get You Out of My Head." His name is Adam Curtis. That is also available on YouTube. Check it out. All right. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Instagram. Yes, Maybe please. leave a review, etc. cetera. Uh, like, subscribe, share, click the bell. What's up, YouTube? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, For the record, we don't release any poggers in chat. Uh, <laughs> no, see. that's racist God. now. You can't do that. Oh, sorry. Uh, what's the new what's the new pog champ emote, or pog champ emote the pog champ emote is still pog Band. champ, but it changes every Paul, day you know what, what the, the picture fuck is. They're talking about. Oh, interesting. It's a whole other language. Well, it's a it's a Twitch thing. Yeah, got a couple of boomers here. Falling asleep sometimes. early. Don't know, <laughs> don't know the hot <laughs> lingo. Man, easy. You're certainly not an e boy. I was gonna say <laughs> two e boys over here. <laughs> One of my students had to tell me what STFU meant because he put it in the chat. I was like, what does that you mean? You didn't dude? know what that meant. He, oh, come he was on. like, he was like, come so on. that's come that's, on. He's like, so that's for so, but. If he just straight up told you what it meant, you would have thought he was just shutting you down. What? Because you, you know, be you'd better, be like, "What does that it, mean?" And he'd be like, "Shut the fuck up." What did he tell you? Like, oh, come wait, on! Wait, wait, wait. Was, what did he tell you? It means it, it means it means shut the fogey up because <laughs> you're so old that word makes sense yeah. to you. <laughs> <laughs> A nuclear collision in her soul Loves with the electronic control Atom bomb, baby, little atom bomb I want her in my wigwam She's just the way I want her to be A million times harder